0: Hey, you're listening to the SubClub Podcast, a show dedicated to the best practices for building and growing subscription app businesses. We'll share insider secrets from the top subscription apps on the app stores. Let's get into the show.
1: Hello, I'm your host, David Bernard, and with me as almost always, Remedy Cat CEO, Jacob Iding. Our guest today is Robbie Kelman-Baxter, consultant, keynote speaker, and author. She's advised many of the world's leading subscription based companies, including serving on the advisory board of Strava. Her most recent book, The Forever Transaction, is a deep dive into everything consumer subscription and a must read for anyone in the space. On the podcast, we talk with Robbie about finding your super users, the real reasons for subscription fatigue, and why pricing isn't as important as you might think, especially early on. Hey, Robbie, welcome to the podcast.
0: Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat with you both.
1: Yeah. So I was introduced to your work by somebody recommending your book, The Membership Economy. And it really struck me, and I was so excited that you agreed to be on the podcast because here's a book written in 2015. And we'll talk about your, your other book that was written more recently, but written in 2015. And I, I'm I'm looking through the scanning the chapters and, and uh bought the book and scanning the book. It's like, this is everything we're talking about now, thinking it's all so novel with subscription apps, but really consumer subscriptions have been around for decades um, and you've been working in this space, you know, way longer than any of us. And so that'd be really fun to have you on the podcast to talk more broadly about these principles of consumer subscriptions that apply equally to D2C subscriptions, as well as the app space that we work in. So um, that's where I wanted to kind of kick things off. So how did you get your start in consumer subscriptions?
0: So a couple of threads uh, came together. One of them was that I was in product marketing for SaaS, what is now called SaaS for five years, um, right before I hung out my own shingle and started consulting. Um, so I had that background as a product manager, you know, working with, with software products that were being sold as subscriptions. And then I became an independent consultant and my fifth client was Netflix. And I fell in love with their business model. And I was wondering why isn't everybody else falling in love with their business model too? This is amazing, recurring revenue, predictable cash flow, the amount of data they were collecting on their customer, the fact that their offering was just a much better way of delivering on a promise. That many of us wanted delivery for, which is, you know, professionally re- created catalog of video content delivered in the most efficient way possible, which meant not having to, you know, put a raincoat over your jammies to go, you know, pick up a movie with cost certainty, no late fees. And I started, I was consulting with Netflix, I was already a customer, and a few people started calling and saying, Hey, we heard you worked with Netflix. We want to be the Netflix of our space. Um, whether that was Mm -hmm. news or music or bicycles or dental pain management products or clothes. (laughs) There was a lot of interest in what it was that Netflix was doing. And I started trying to develop, I'm a consultant, trying to create frameworks, trying to say, what are they doing and which parts are applicable to other businesses and which parts are just unique to that group of people solving that particular problem. And that's really where... I I got started and turns out to be big enough and deep enough that it's kept me really busy for you know it's been 20 years 20 years of subscriptions.
1: Yeah, what an amazing fifth client to uh to land as a consultant. That's uh really yeah. great. And so you were with them before they even introduced the the uh video on demand on the internet, right? You started with them when yeah. it was DVDs in the mail. A yeah. more kind of traditional D to C subscription service. But but even then was satisfying a lot of
2: those almost all of those conditions, right? I didn't have to go outside just to my mailbox, not too bad. Mm-hmm. Price certainty. I didn't have late fees. Um and then like, you know, an insanely large catalog, right? Um yeah. you know, it was it was it wasn't we just had to wait for the technology to get there, right? And then then we had VOD being uh, accessible. Yeah.
0: And they were already thinking, I mean it was amazing to me. So I was there th- you know, the time that I worked most actively with them, two thousand one to two thousand three, um, even during that time, which was all DVDs, all three DVDs out at a time, they were already thinking about streaming versus, you know, should they let you download it and then have it explode after, you know, a, a, you know, some duration? Mm-hmm. What was the best way to to deliver it? Should they come through your, you know, for a while? remember, I think it came through your PlayStation or your your Wii. Mm-hmm.
2: That was my first. That was my first like set top box experience <laughs> yeah. with Netflix. Would have been on Nintendo. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, so they it, they were already thinking about it. And I think that's a really important part of any, you know, subscription. Is even if your subscription works great today and it's good enough to get people to sign up, the product team has to be thinking how are we going to continue to evolve it, in particular for engagement, right? How do we continue to stay relevant to these people while also having those new and improved features that bring new people in. And I think a lot of organizations have been taught to over-index on acquisition benefits and not thinking as much about those, those sticky engagement benefits that often are really hard to talk about credibly, right? If I say to you, you know, sign up for my subscription, my, my video subscription, because it's the most it's the easiest to find the next piece of content and you're going to love our algorithm, right? People aren't going to believe you. You don't have credibility there. So all they're going to say is, Oh, you have Hamilton. I'll sign up for that. And then I'll cancel. (laughs) And then it's still up to you. You know, if you're Disney plus to get them from Hamilton to princess movies, National Geographic titles, ESPN, all the other great stuff that they have. Star (laughs) Wars.
1: (laughs) I'm watching that with my son right now. Yeah, that's great. And then I I do want to kind of step back and you're kind of dove right into the weeds with some really actionable advice, but I want to step back a little bit and talk more broadly. So after working with a few um, companies in the subscription space and Netflix so early, you eventually wrote this book, The Membership Economy, which I, I love that phrase and, and and wanted to ask actually did you did you coin that phrase and then how did you at the time and how do you still kind of define this membership economy that you wrote about
0: yeah well first of all I'd love to say that like I just came up with it and it was so natural <laughs> and obvious but you know I, I was thinking I was like is it is it about subscription pricing is it about premium services is it about recurring revenue should I call it the recurring revenue so, like I, I was trying to think what is it and where I came out was It's not about the subscription pricing, which I think is a tactic. Um, It's a tactic that you earn the right to do by having a relationship that is trusted with your customer. The customer trusts you so much that they're like, fine, you can charge me every month or you can charge me every year and I will just keep paying you and not look for alternatives. And for me, that was based on a certain kind of human relationship. And that's where I came up with this concept of membership, that you belong that it's you're committing upfront to a long-term relationship as a vendor, and then you earn the right to have subscriptions. So that was kind of where I came up with it. I worked with Netflix. I also worked with, at that time, Intuit. Um, I worked with uh, SurveyMonkey and their predecessor, uh, Zoomerang, and I worked with Oracle on the B two B side. And those were some of the companies that helped me sort of connect the dots and figure out the framework um, of you know here's some ways to think about. What happens when you treat your customers like members? Members, here's what you need to track. Here's how you need to think about it, and here's what it what it can do for you. Honestly, the yeah. first book, all I was trying to do was say this is a good idea. You might want to consider it for a bunch of reasons.
2: <laughs> I, I think of it in opposition. I think it's is it the um, uh, the Zora founders book subscription economy?
0: Yeah, yes, but- yeah, yeah
2: but you're right in the sense that subscription kind of implies like one particular tactic for monetization that does go really well with this concept. But when I think of membership as opposed to just subscription, like membership implies also community to me, right? It implies like building this this, this ecosystem, this community, that, that which, which then engenders trust, which then allows you to monetize, right? And build this yeah. predictability and this great business model. But thinking about it in those terms, um, I think is a really nice way to put it, as opposed to like let's take something, you know, let's take something that that we were monetizing another way and just slap a, a, a renewal on it, which is something we see a lot in the in the yeah. app world. Uh, this transition from paid upfront or microtransactions-driven apps to subscriptions, some have made it and some have not, and I think the ones that have made it are the ones who look at it in that light, in the membership light, in the earning their business repeatedly through content or through community. So I, yeah, that that framing I think is really accurate.
0: Your point about, you know, so many companies just slap a subscription price onto whatever they already had. You know, okay, we have a usage-based model. Let's see what happens if we do a subscription-based model for the same product. Or let's see what happens if we take, you know, a model where you have ownership, where I download the app and it's mine and I can use it forever, even if it's really, really obsolete. If it solves my problem, who cares? Um, To one where you're being forced to pay every month you know, ostensibly to get upgrades and maybe access to your peers and some kind of community functionality. It really is a different product. You need a different product for subscription than for, you know, a purchase yeah. or a usage-based model. And, you know, I love Teens Book. Subscribed is a great book. I recommend it, you know, to people. It's, it's very well written. It has a lot of interesting ideas. But I didn't go with that, you know, subscription economy model just because I really want people to focus more, on the culture and the relationship, and not jump straight to let's get some of that subscription pricing stuff so that we can get a good valuation. You know. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. I. It, you made me think of this one experience I had just as an anecdote, was um, Xbox in two, uh, sort would have been like four, three or four years ago, released an Xbox subscription. And I thought was sounded really cool. One, because like I could defer, I buy another Xbox every three or four or five years. So it's was like, oh, I'll just spread that cost out. I didn't have a lot of cash at the time. I was like, this is great, 40 bucks a month. I get a new Xbox, everybody's happy. And so I went in to do this at the, the Microsoft store. And what it really was, was they were giving me like a cash advance. Like they were giving me like, mm-hmm. basically I had to get a credit check to get a subscription. And I was like, this is not, not what I was, had in mind. Exactly, right? Like I thought I was joining the the Xbox club and I was going to just get an Xbox and they were going to place my Xbox for me, right? Perfect example of, of that case of just like slapping subscription pricing on what was essentially a loan. Uh, mm, yeah, <laughs> so now, yeah. now my credit score, I have uh, a loan for a, 19, a 2016 Ford Edge and uh, an Xbox. Uh, <laughs> Those are my two like credit items I've ever had.
0: It's, <laughs>
1: it's really weird.
0: And they've come a long way. I mean, Microsoft has come a long way with their subscription strategies you know, not just on the gaming side, but, you know, with, with Office Mm -hmm. uh, 365 and, you know, they've done a lot of thinking about subscription, but it really is super complicated.
2: Mm -hmm. I imagine, especially with hardware, right? Like with software, zero marginal costs, whatever you can just, it it makes a lot of sense. I I will say, I will say on to give Microsoft some credit back in the gaming world, their Xbox game pass product, product which i also subscribe to has been amazing i bought a new xbox game in forever because i don't really care about title individuality i just i pay whatever it is ten dollars a month or fifteen dollars a month and i get access to like 50 different games that rotates and it's plenty it's plenty for me and i will probably never unsubscribe from that right but it feels like a community because it's software driven i'm in there there's like there's changing and there's events stuff that comes in and out they make it a big thing they've built it up into this into this yeah this kind of it feels like a membership, um, as opposed to, yeah, just slapping in a firm loan on an Xbox purchase. Basically.
1: I do want to step back to your, to your book, the membership economy. And, um, I love the, the subtitle, find your super users, master the forever transaction and build recurring revenue. Finding super users is something we've actually talked a lot about here on the podcast so looking for those cohorts. Um, one of our recent podcast guests, Eric Crowley talked about locals versus tourists. Um, Seth Miller, another recent podcast guest talked about how you know f- figuring out these cohorts was just a huge unlock for their business. Um, so what's your process? How do you recommend clients find these super users? And how, how do you think about these, these super users? You mentioned all the way back in 2015 before <laughs> any of us were thinking about these things.
0: Yeah, well, so for me, what I think about with super use, so I think about, you know first, anybody who does subscriptions knows segmentation is like like the most important thing. You have to know who your customer is, not just at the moment of acquisition, what they look like, you know, when you're like, that's the person I want, but how are they going to behave once they join? The moment of transaction becomes the starting line for understanding your customer, not the finish line. Like, oh, we knew them well enough to get them to buy. It's, we knew them well enough to get them to buy and then to get them to make this a habit and then to get them to go deeper and to stay for a long time and maybe even bring their friends. So, you know, the first thing I always do with my clients, I say, let's focus on who you're, who you're making the promise to. What is the promise you're making? Who are you making it to? And that's kind of part one. And then we map out the journey. What is it? What is the goal that they have that is ongoing or the problem that they have that is ongoing? And what are the moments on their journey where you might be able to intervene and help them, right? So in the beginning, it might be just one or two places, right? i'm 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 QuickBooks. I help you at tax time. But then it might be, oh, and I'm going to help you at some other key moments in your process of adulting financially, right? You know, one of the things is you move out of your parents' house, you pay your own taxes. Another is you might take out a loan for that awesome, you know, Ford, whatever car you said, <laughs> you know, you're going get to a, get a car and you need a loan and, you know, they can help you. And so you're layering in those different benefits on a journey because you want them to stay. You want to keep providing value. Um, and then once you know what that person looks like, then you go tell your marketing team to go get lookalikes, get more people like that. Super users goes one step beyond that which is not only are they great customers, you know, high customer lifetime value, easy to serve, whatever, they also are putting their own money and effort, their own resources into strengthening your model. So these are people that bring in, these are evangelists who bring in other members. These are people who give you feedback um, on your products and services, which sometimes doesn't feel like a gift, but always is a gift. And it's people who are willing to help onboard New members, right? So the ones that you know explain in the user group, you know that you know this is this is how you use that product, or this is this is my workaround, or this is you know what was hard for me and how I fixed it. So those people, you know, that make referrals, that that speak out on your behalf, that gather, you know, others, they're so valuable. And I, I got really into this idea actually with CrossFit. Uh, my sister is a is a big CrossFitter, and watching her. In addition to all the money she was spending to to be a member of this CrossFit box, the amount of time and effort she was spending to onboard new members, to invite them over when the when the box was closed, she and her husband would put out their equipment on their they live on a cul de sac they'd put it all out on the street and invite the whole box to come over and get their workout done there because they love the community so much, right? Their own time and money to support the community.
1: Hmm. Are there kind of specific ways, especially digitally, like uh, with with analytics or customer service, what are the tools that that you see people be successful in finding those kinds of users and understanding those patterns and, and
0: who they yeah. are
1: and what they look like and, and those sorts of things?
0: So the, the, the starting point, I think, is always lifetime customer value. So you you look at the group of customers who stay the longest and spend the most. Right. And the ones that people would say, we wish we could make more of these, you know, mm. and then you look, you develop hypotheses. What does this group share? And it can be as simple as writing the names of your first 10 customers on a board and saying, these are the 10 customers we had. These five have been awesome. These five, you know, didn't stick around long, canceled, uh, complain a lot, you know, whatever the reason is. And then you try to come up with what is, what did this group share that this group doesn't share? That's the simplest way. In a a data world where you have the data, you're doing the same thing, but digitally. How did they onboard? What was the source of the lead? Um, What time of year? Like, which cohort are they in? Did they join, Mm -hmm. you know, people like, for example, with QuickBooks, people that join in tax season might behave very differently than people who join as a New Year's resolution or who join in August, right? What kind of person starts thinking really hard about managing their money in August, right? You know, so so looking for those things, developing hypotheses, looking at the data, trying to say what's the difference between our most valuable customers and our not most valuable customers, which is not your worst customers, because your worst customers are often outliers, but just the ones where you're like, they're just not that good. They came for two months, they left, they binged, they used up, you know, they were using us really heavily for six weeks, and then they left. What's different about them than the ones who continue to use us gradually, for five months, um, and I think that's where the hypotheses come out. And then tactically, what you do after you know is you look at the difference in onboarding those different groups, and you optimize your onboarding experience to build those habits. And then you market. This is often requires a tremendous amount of discipline. You market to only attract the high value people and not to attract the others. Hmm. So. If I walk into McDonald's with a gown on, with my husband, and I say, it's our 20th anniversary, show us to your finest table, <laughs> give us the best you've got, and we'd like a nice bottle of champagne, right? Customers not always right at McDonald's, right? They're not gonna say, oh man, Robbie needs champagne. Somebody scurry down to the 7-Eleven and you know <laughs> get a bottle of Prosecco and you know we'll try to pass it off for her. They say, that's not really what we do here, dummy. They might not say dummy, but they might be thinking it. Right? That's not what we do here. You Depends know? on the McDonald's, <laughs> right? We're here, we, you know. We're cheap. We're fast. It tastes good. Your kids love it. You can drive through and eat it, but we don't do we don't do special occasion stuff. And so they know who they are, right? And they're okay with me not coming in, right? They're even okay with me saying. By the way, don't go to McDonald's. It's a terrible place to celebrate your anniversary, right? They're kind of fine. The lighting's
2: it, just all off. Right?
0: <laughs> the lighting is terrible. It makes your skin look awful. But it's, you know, the point is that if they took care of me, right, what am I going to do? I'm going to tell you, you know what? Just go there for your anniversary. Just tell them it's your anniversary. They'll run out and get all the stuff you need. And then they have all these people Mm -hmm. that are expensive to serve, right? It's the same thing digitally, right? If you bring in the wrong people who are going to binge on your content in the first month or the people who are going to push you to create features that nobody needs except them, right? It's just going to throw your whole business off in the wrong direction. So having that discipline upfront to know what you do and you don't do well and to say no to some prospect, it's really hard to say no to prospects, right? Mm -hmm. If they have money and they're like, just add this feature and I'll pay you. You know, Netflix in the early days, a lot of people wanted them to have video games, right? Video games were also on disks. Seems easy, right? As an outsider, as an expert, right? I'm like, ah, video games, same thing. Video games work in a totally different way. And what Netflix said is we don't really understand how people would rent games. We don't understand how they'd use them. We don't understand how many we would need. We don't understand how they would value that. We don't understand how to negotiate terms with gaming companies. Like that's a whole different thing. We're going to, we have plenty of runway here just mm-hmm. focusing on video content.
2: Yeah. It's, it's really interesting that, that, that feeling as a founder, especially true in SaaS, when you have literally 10 customers and like you will do anything yeah. for the year 11th. Um, <laughs> it's a little bit true in consumer SaaS too. In the early days, like you, you're just kind of like, how do I get the funnel bigger? How do I, how do I, you, you, I think you are a little bit myopic on um, the top of the funnel and not thinking about this long-term thing, partially because we don't have a lot of data. You launch your app six months later, you're trying to make decisions on customer lifetime value, and you don't really have a good sense because you don't know who's sticking around. You probably don't have a ton of data. But one thing you said that that really got my gears turning was that process of putting them on a board and just looking at them looking at the 10 customers or whatever it is, 100, even in consumer SaaS where you have hundreds of customers and not tens, it's not that many. You can grab, you'll be surprised at how many things I've, in in my old days in consumer SaaS, of like just clicking into a customer and just watching how they use the app, like an individual, right? It it doesn't, it's not data, but it gives you hints and you can start there. And then and then I would say the next scariest thing is, yeah, yeah, hypotheses. And then you actually talk to those people if you can, like (laughs) get them on the phone. You'll be surprised what they tell you. One of our... Our guests um, from Matthew from Photo Room a few weeks ago talked about they would take their app to McDonald's and just show it to people uh, to keep the McDonald's references going um, and get like, in person <laughs> feedback and that helped them learn. You know they they were they were a, an app that thought they were for everybody and found out later that they're actually like kind of like a prosumer app for Shopify people, um, people with mm. Shopify stores and people with with com and and that like kind of exploded their business for this exact case you're talking about where they found out okay yeah we're not for this entire like long tail of low intent users we're for this really core set but that can be really scary if that set's kind of small yeah. right
1: <laughs>
0: it's, it's always scary to niche down but it's almost always a good strategy and i wanted to tag on to something else that that you said Jacob which i think is really important people often say how can i make any decisions about you know based on you know who has the highest customer lifetime value when you know, we've only been around for three months or six months. We have to wait until they leave, hopefully not for three years or five years. But what I've found, and, you know, I wonder if you've seen the same thing, is that most people who leave, leave in the first two months. So what you really want to do is optimize for onboarding. You know, are they adopting habits that look like people who are steady users getting value? And you can often tell that, In the first month by how many people drop off by who stays and by you know are they binging or are they using it in kind of a normal way and so you don't have to wait for 18 18 months or however many periods a lot of it you get your answer right away do they cancel at the end of the first period
2: yeah it's it's good to think about your product in terms of not just like signups and getting through the end of onboarding like that day one experience but think about what your activation hooks are like what are the things that people Mm -hmm, are actually mm -hmm. investing and teachers. And I always think that that's, that's a, um, you know, you think about this long-term relationship, giving users places in your product to invest and to give back and to connect, like putting in more yeah. information about themselves. Like there's passive usage consumption. Netflix does a good job. Like you can save lists and stuff, but they do a lot of this just in passively, right? Like you consume content and they learn about you and then they they have a profile. But I think some of the best steps like let users put in and and that's gonna also not only probably make them stickier users, but also gives you early indications and some things to hook on and be like, okay. I mean, Dropbox, this was a big thing in Dropbox's story was um they they could get people to like understand the concept, but where had massive product issues getting people to put a file in the thing, right? Like files are not necessarily the most user friendly thing. Like uh, some sort of app that runs in the background, whatever they, but what they did, they pulled users in, they watched them do it and totally fail. And then they fixed the product. Right? <laughs> um, yeah. and, and that's, that's, you know, core product problem, but it relates to this, this story of getting somebody to membership, right? Like getting them activated, yeah. um, and focusing on that.
1: One of the things that you talked about in your most recent book that I think is so important to understanding the activation is is this concept of a forever promise. And so so your most recent book, The Forever Transaction, we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes and whatnot. But in order to activate, in order to, to even just build a business, and especially a subscription business, you need to start with what's this promise that you're going to make to customers? And then especially to, again, like you said earlier, to justify recurring payments. Like, So tell me how you think about uh, forever promise and how how any app, any business that wants to set up recurring payments should be thinking about this forever promise.
0: Yeah, it's it's really simple. You take a step back and you say, when my customers come to me, what is the ongoing problem they're trying to solve? Or what is the ongoing goal they're trying to achieve? And how can I best align my product and my messaging with that goal, that ongoing goal, or that ongoing problem? So, what can I promise them about it? So, with a Netflix, it's about you know entertainment. You know, I'm going to provide you with the biggest selection of professionally created video content delivered in the most efficient way, right? With cost certainty, um, you're never going to have to pay extra fees. And you know, there's a lot of a lot of apps that are around you know, helping you with some part of your business process, getting a certain kind of work done or tracking your finances or creating beautiful images for, you know, personal use for your hobbies, what have you, gaming apps for fun. And I think first getting really clear on what your promise is and who you're making it to. And then you design the features and benefits to support them forever on their journey. And you say, as long as you continue paying me regularly, I am going to continue improving the way I deliver on my promise to you, right? If I'm a gym, I'm going to have new equipment. I'm going to have new classes. Um, I might offer you stuff online. If I'm a news source, I'm going to offer it maybe through an app. Maybe I'm going to give you access to the journalists. Maybe I'm going to give you access to conferences or webinars on top of news because My promise is I'm going to help you understand the world around you so you can make better decisions. And I don't have, like, if you even think about that promise, there's nothing about that promise that makes you say it needs to be a newspaper, right? Mm -hmm. It could be a conference. It could be classes. It could be a community of like-minded people sharing their learnings and their observations. So why not layer all of that in over time so that you get closer and closer to guaranteeing that they're going to get the impact that they hoped for on an ongoing basis.
2: It's interesting, it in some ways relates to like what a company mission can be for a different audience, right? You say, you know, Revenue Cat has a a mission and that's one thing that won't change, right? That that's kind of what we do and that's part of joining the company and whatever. Um, But but I do think there's value in communicating that as well. This is like the customer facing version of that. Like what's our mission, what's our charter? Like, why are we here? And what can I guarantee that's not gonna change, right? Especially when you think in those terms of not the like person who's coming to do a very quick transaction Thing as in, I'm going to binge, as you put it, or maybe I just am trying this out, or I have this like one limited life or limited pain, like a limited time pain. Mm-hmm. Like, what's a yeah. like forever engagement that we're gonna do? Um, is really interesting, right? When I read the that whole framing of just the forever transaction, the forever promise. It's really exciting because we have the infrastructure for the first time in human history to really make this efficient at scale that like computers can do these sort of like patronage relationships for us. Yeah, Um, yeah. And rethinking how we frame commerce and and relationship with customers. I think, yeah, I mean, some of the work you you were a bit ahead of us on.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. well, I mean, you know, I. (laughs) I've been here a lot. Like I got here first because I was here for a long time, but, (laughs) you know, it's kind of a dubious distinction. But, you know, I I think you're right. Like you you step back and you say, what are the problems? What's the ongoing problem? The ongoing problem is I'm constantly running out of laundry detergent, right? The ongoing problem is I look in my closet and I have nothing to wear for this occasion, whatever this occasion might be, right? Um, You know, something that I think is really interesting to think about, you know, Amazon talks about removing all friction from all buying decisions, right? They started with just books, right? And you still have to wait two weeks to get the book, right? When you ordered it, but they had this vision, all the different friction in all the different buying decisions. We're just going to, you know, layer by layer, we're going to remove all of those things. And, you know, at some point, you know, I think they want to get to the point where I think to myself, those are really cool headphones that Jacob's wearing. I wish I had those. And before I even say it, They're on my ears and then I'm like, oh, these are uncomfortable and they make my hair look bad. They're gone, right? That it's almost magical. That's what they're moving to. No friction. I don't even have to say a word. It just happens. Uh, You know, I think having that kind of guidance of like, that's what we're trying to do. There's so many times when I've gone shopping and I've needed something, whether it's like buying a new house or buying a white blouse for an event and thinking this shouldn't be that hard. I have enough money to pay for this. I know exactly what I need it for. And I've already spent four hours, or four months, or in the case of buying a house, four years trying to find <laughs> you know the needle in the haystack. It should not be this. When when you say it should not be this hard, that's probably a good an opportunity. Good opportunity, yeah.
2: Yeah, no, I, I'm. I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking about revenue. Cats are you know shameless plug time to talk about my company, but <laughs> uh, uh, I think about our forever promise and we, our mission is like we help developers make more money. That's our goal. Um, mm-hmm. But I almost think that's like. Kind of like a short, pithy way of like phrasing it. Really, it's about like how do we remove the way you put it as barriers. Like how do we remove all the barriers for a developer to make money? How do we remove all the barriers for a developer to create value with software for other people? Um, and often, like people see a lot of these. You know, subscription infrastructure problems, data problems—all these, all these things are not why somebody got into it, right? When they started Netflix, it wasn't like I, I just can't wait to do like data cohort analysis, right? And like all these things. It's like, no, we want to deliver entertainment to people the easiest way possible. And so, you know, for us, like that's I think in some ways our particular problem that we're we we've committed and and going to the forever thing too. You know, our product is a it's a sub subscri- it's a it's a subscription essentially um but it's a long-term commitment by the nature of it it's very infrastructure related so like i've always talked had to you know especially in the early days had to give a lot of assurances to folks like yeah we're we're sticking around like yeah this is yeah. this is the long-term goal for us but i think i think that comes down to consumers too like the best companies i've seen in our space doing consumer software apps, subscription apps essentially, have like a really deep connection to the mission and the problem. I think of Calm. I think of again I'll reference Photo Room, this app we work with that you know, they've been in vision, computer vision and and they've worked for GoPro and like they've just, this is in their DNA to work on these problems of image manipulation. And then and then on the other spectrum of that, you think of like Companies are just stamping out, and I don't know to blow anybody. Companies stamping out utility apps or like whatever it is, and then slapping a subscription thing on it. Yeah, it works. they are gonna get marginally more LTV than they were, you know, before. But it's that's not gonna. That's not, I think, advancing the level of like computer or like problem solving for consumers that we were than we were doing before.
0: I think you have to be really passionate about the customer needs and the customer's journey rather than on your product. And this is this is always a really rough conversation because a lot of businesses really, really, really hold their products in high regard, whether it's, you know, automobiles or, you know, software. I mean, software, you know, most companies around here in Silicon Valley, like the software team, they run everything. Like that's, that's the talent and everything, you know, they can build what they want. And, you know, I, I used to joke that, you know, when you work in like, the car world, right? Sometimes it's just about the cup holders, right? It's not about, (laughs) it's not about the big engine, right? Which is what a lot of the people, a lot of people go into the world of cars, of automotive, because they love cool cars. But a lot of people who buy cars don't buy cool cars. They buy practical cars that solve certain problems for them. And you have to be passionate about the problems you're solving for the customer. So I I did a lot of work early on in my sort of subscription life in the um, high-end bicycle industry. I was working with the Bicycle Product Suppliers Association, really, really interesting space. But one thing about it is that most people who own bike stores and work in bike stores and sell bikes and manufacture bikes are bike racers and off-road, you know, risk-taking bike enthusiasts that have nine bikes at home. But there's a whole huge untapped market of people who just need a bike to get to school or a bike to get to work or a bike for for Saturdays to go to the farmer's market and they ask really annoying questions at the bike store like <laughs> does this come in pink or can I get a basket for this or is this going to get um you know grease on my on my work pants and at some point even you know like there's always this tension because the people who create the products sometimes are like those aren't problems I want to work on Mm -hmm. Right. Or, you know, I worked in the hospital, you know, kind of in the, in the the health industry and I talked to a lot of surgeons and they're like, yeah, you guys can do whatever you want around customer, this customer, that treating customers like patients, whatever. But I want to see my patient unconscious on a table and I'll cut them open and I'll fix them and make them better. (laughs) And I don't want to do all that other stuff. Right. It's hard because they're the talent. You know, I think this is a big issue with subscriptions because those marquee elements aren't always the thing that's going to drive engagement and retention
2: it's falling in love with your own product right it's falling in love with the um yeah the solution and not the problem you know um yeah yeah see, exactly see, i mean i've been in the when you know in the past when i was in the weeds like you start to really over it's, I, I think analytics can actually like be this is where yeah going back to the discussion of like just throw 10 users on a board and maybe don't like get the finest like tooth comb to like go through your data first is like when you have like super high fidelity data on everything you can start to get really data oriented but if your product is the thing collecting the data you sort of inherently bias the data collection you're doing based on the product you have and you miss a lot of opportunities because you're, you're not just thinking about the problem space you know, i worked on this app called elevate which was brain training and i can remember so many so many like heated product discussions about uh, oh, this flow, should we do this or X and Y and Z? And not as many as we should have had about like why are people actually coming to this app and like addressing those questions for, like head on um, and thinking about ways that we can improve the product with that as like the the beginning. And I even see it at Revenue Cat too. Like we have a lot of products which are really deep and rich and people use and they're in love with. Um, and we can, you know, you can spend a lot of brain power and a lot of focus thinking about the next iteration of that thing. The re- Yeah, like you say, the the, the the bike shop owner who's really into bikes or like really into some, some particular technology and lose touch with, yeah, these bigger things. It's like forever promised. It's like, what are we actually building? Like, what does revenue cap mean in, in a decade when the problems we're solving now actually maybe aren't that relevant? That's probably the case I mean, we've talked a lot about media companies, and I, I I almost snuck in a metaverse joke, and now I'll just refer to almost sneaking in a metaverse joke. about your headphones, but like. You, we think about this is like the modes of consumption are going to be changing. And that's where these like missions, customer mission or forever promises kind of come in. It's like making sure that regardless of a Netflix delivered on a DVD or on a streaming set top box or into some sort of like brain implant, like yeah. <laughs> the, the, the subscribers will transfer. Right. Um, yeah. so yeah, <laughs> I, I just, and this is one of my, like, I'm, I'm just, now I'm, now I'm ranting, but I think this is one of the reasons I'm still really excited about all of these pieces coming together um, is because it does just feel like we've reached some stage in our economy where we can align a lot more incentives this way than maybe we have been able to in the past, which I think is just exciting.
1: But as we align those incentives and people get more and more subscriptions, nice little transition there. Thank you, Jacob. That was great, David. You're getting this podcast. i like, <laughs> Really turning <laughs> There is a a growing um, chorus of but subscription fatigue. People are are tiring of all these subscriptions, and no matter how much you can align incentives and everything else, people are just not going to want to pay subscriptions. So having having seen the the growth in subscription uh, consumer subscriptions starting way back at Netflix in the early 2000s, and now we are layering on more and more and more, what's your perspective on this this concept of subscription fatigue? Are consumers really tiring of paying in this way?
0: Yeah, so the upside of this explosion in subscriptions is that consumers um, and actually businesses alike are much more receptive to subscription offerings. They understand them, they understand the value they can provide if they're done right. Um, And they're easier than ever before for any kind of company you know, from the, the, the smallest mom and pop up to the, you know, the biggest multinationals to offer subscription pricing. The downside is there's this glut of subscriptions. Every company has them and not all of them are well-designed as, as we've been discussing. Um, and, and that leads to subscription fatigue. And, and there's sort of three things that I think contribute to that. One of them is where the, the product does not justify subscription pricing, right? This is a product I'm going to need once and you're requiring me to subscribe to it. That feels unfair. Um, you know, or I'm never, I'm hardly ever gonna use this and you're making me subscribe, even though you know my use case doesn't justify that investment. Second problem is kind of the flip side of that, which I think of as subscription overwhelm or subscription guilt, which is this is great value, actually. Your product is fantastic, but I can't use all the value because of my own issues. And that makes me feel bad about myself. Like this is when you, you know, you have the New Yorker magazine piling up on your bedside table. Right. And you just because you just want to Netflix and chill because you're tired. But like your thought at the beginning of the day is I'm going to get so smart. I'm going to read all these great articles that makes you feel bad about yourself. You can't, you know, what I would suggest, for example, that a New Yorker does is to educate consumers that you only have to read one or two articles to get the full value of your subscription. It's all you care to consume, not consume all of it or you're mm. you're lazy. Um, but I think that overwhelm or, you know, same thing with blue apron, where the meal kits are in your fridge and you're not no, using them. Don't even talk and to me about blue can't... apron fatigue.
1: <laughs> oh, it's a rough <laughs> subject.
0: Yeah. Cause you feel bad. Like the meals are calling to you, you know, like, don't go out with your friends. There's a yeah. meal in the fridge. It's like, don't oh, it's time to go home and
2: fight with my spouse about cooking because we have this giant <laughs> meal kit to do. Uh, but it's great. I love the right. time. Uh, <laughs> yeah.
0: So then, and then, and then, I think the last one. I mean, but it's it's great because it's not the fault. The meal is great. It's just yeah, the product's great. I don't feel like eating it today, or someone invited me over for like the crazy one is when someone invites you to dinner, and so then it's not even a, a question of finances. You're like, well. Either way, I'm not going to have to spend any more money, and I'm going to get a delicious dinner. Do I want to make the Blue Apron dinner or go to my friend's house who just invited me? <laughs> well, I can't go to my friend's house because I feel bad throwing the Blue Apron in the this, garbage. Yeah,
2: it's gonna the lettuce is going to be wilted by next by tomorrow. Yeah, so. it's the last day I can cook. And then
0: the last issue, so there's there's you know bad product market fit. There's this subscription overwhelm or subscription guilt, and then the last one is hiding the cancel button. And I'm really interested in what you guys think about that one because a lot of subscriptions. Um, make it really hard for you to get out of this cancel anytime relationship, even though that's what they pitch. Join and cancel anytime. If you can find the cancel button, which we've hidden behind 27 clicks with a call us on Tuesday, you know, extra hurdle.
2: Yeah. I think it's, well, my take is it's terrible. And anybody that does it should really reevaluate what they're doing in software. Cause like, I think it violates that trust, right? Like, welcome. Yeah. We're gonna ask for this thing where you're gonna you're, you're gonna let us charge. We're just gonna suck money out of your bank account every month because you've decided to like enter this relationship with us, and then we're gonna go ahead and betray that trust, right? Or we could turn around and betray that trust yeah. and not make it bi directional. But yeah, I hadn't I hadn't thought of fatigue in so many channels like that or so many aspects. But like the the overwhelming aspect is interesting, and I resonate. I feel that. Like I feel that with with. The, the dinner boxes for sure but even in software too there's certain pieces of software like i feel like uh, i can't cancel because i have these intents and things like that and that's not really what you want to those aren't the relationships you want to focus on right
1: like but on the flip side there i think like i, I use this example a ton but um visco i'm not a daily user i'm not even necessarily a monthly user but when there's a photo of my kids or just a, a photo i took that i i really cherish. I import it into Visco, and Visco makes it better. And that to me is so valuable that I don't even care. Like I mean, twenty bucks a year, I think is too cheap for their product. I would pay a lot more, even though I maybe only use it quarterly sometimes, or maybe once a month, or you know, when I'm on vacation, maybe I use it every day for a week. But it's interesting that that product. Doesn't create that sense of oh I'm not getting enough value out of it because I get so much value when I do. It might be a pricing thing. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe if it were sixty dollars a year, it would be too much. But I yeah. mean, I just I, I just would never consider canceling because I it's just when I have a photo I care about, I take it to Visco and it's better. And it like, that's their forever promise. And it just resonates so well with me that I don't, I don't get that guilt. You know, I I get more than $20 a year of value out of it personally.
0: Yeah. I think, I mean, it's interesting. I think one of the things about this, you know, sort of dealing with subscription overwhelm is, you know, is it framed in like whatever the customer is anchoring their pricing to where they say it's valuable enough. So, so for example, I worked with one of these produce box companies and One of their challenges was that most of their customers said that most weeks they ended up throwing something away, right? Because it's never the exact right amount of produce, right? So you end up at the end of the week with like soggy kale or, you know, turnips, and then you go on vacation and you come back and like, what am I going to do with these turnips? But one of the things that we did is we set expectations that it's okay to throw out a little bit of produce, that you're still getting a better price than you would at the store, and you're still supporting farmers, local farmers. So sometimes it's as simple as just reframing what the expectation is. Like saying for Visco, you know, if you if you use you know if you use this for two or three you know memory pictures a year, you know doesn't that pay for itself? Isn't twenty mm-hmm. bucks worth you know three great shots of your life? You know the three best moments of 2021. Um, a lot of it is about is about I think expectation setting and understanding your customer, what the value is. Like I don't know how much I pay for Amazon Prime. I don't care. Yeah, I, I, I use that's it a almost every day. I'd I mean, signed I up for
2: a decade ago and haven't thought about really, <laughs> right? <yep.
0: laughs> right, but I use it every day. Like I, I don't care what it costs. I mean, if they start charging three thousand dollars, I would care. But like, if it's hundred dollars a year or eighty-five dollars a year or one hundred and fifteen dollars, like I don't care. And yeah. that's a really important point about pricing is that at least I've found with many of the subscription companies I've worked with and a lot of you know software products when they don't sell well, when their business isn't growing, they immediately jump to the price must be too expensive. We'll have to lower our price. But in so many cases, it's not about the price. It's about the value. I'm not using it. If I'm not using it, it doesn't matter if it's a dollar or a hundred dollars. Um, and so thinking about why aren't they using it before you jump right to, well, I guess I'll take 10% off the top.
1: Yeah, let, let, let's talk pricing real quick because you, you do have several uh strategies that you go through in the book. And in what you were what you were just explaining was one of the things I really took away from your book. Is so that you say in the book that it's more important to understand product market fit and willingness to pay than finding the exact right price. And so you you were you kind of backed into explaining that, but let let's elaborate a little bit in and, and, and essentially what you were just describing was that a product that doesn't have product market fit it, it doesn't matter what you price it yeah what, what are what are your, what else what are your thoughts on on that
0: yeah I, I just think I mean in in so many things in life you're kind of on a continuum like you know I remember when many years ago I started doing weightlifting and you know I told people that I was doing it to be more fit and you know stronger and now it's very common but at the time a woman doing weightlifting, Um, you know, working out with weights and people would say to me, I don't want to get huge muscles. And I was like, oh, honey, you are so far from that being a problem. Like we're at the other end of the continuum. Like there are certainly people, women who work out and get too muscly and that's not what they want. Men too, who are like, then it, you know, intervenes with my ability to do my sport. But for most people, it doesn't just happen. And I think in the world of apps, I think most people kind of over-index on pricing and think that that's going to be the, the key thing to figuring this out. When a lot of times there's actually a pretty big gap between, you know, kind of where you can make money and where your customers willing to pay. There's lots of room, lots of different prices. And as long as you launch somewhere in there, you're going to make some money. And over time, there's lots of ways to become more sophisticated and get to a better and better price point. But a lot of people assume that it's that they have a highly elastic product meaning that for every dollar you increase your pricing your number of customers drops by a predictable percentage and i think in many cases a lot of products that are inelastic if i use it i'll pay anywhere between 5 and 10 dollars a month and if i don't use it i will pay nothing and so if you notice that people aren't are canceling and they're the same people who aren't using the product it's probably not a pricing problem it's probably a product problem
2: Right. I mean, if you're talking about product market fit and a forever relationship, like yeah. that I'm going to pay infinite money in terms of my lifetime, right? Like I'm going to pay money yeah. until I die. <laughs> right.
0: Right. And it's, and the thing is that people assume, like, so what I would say is if you, if you're trying to figure out your first price, I'd say, don't worry about it too much. Um, if you need to do a land grab, like Spotify price low and you can raise your price later, although that's hard, but just do it because you, you want people to adopt your solution. Um, If you're worried about, you know, hurting your core business. And so, you know, then start by pricing really high and you can lower it as you have increased confidence and understanding of use case. But there's a lot of room in there. And, you know, that's really my advice is be somewhere in that range. And if people aren't buying it or aren't staying, look for the other signs of what might be driving it besides pricing. Like, is it that they, you know, failure to launch, they never onboarded, they never activated, they never used the, you know, best features. Um, Is it that they were using it for a while and then their usage trickled off? Maybe they used it up, right? Either they binged or, you know, they've watched everything they've seen. Maybe their job changed so these features are no longer relevant to their work. But really try to be a detective about where the problem is. Like I sometimes say, it's like you have a party in a bar. You're not making money from the party in the bar. Like before you lower the price at the front door, see like are people walking by and not recognizing that you have a party so you have nobody in there? Because that's an awareness problem. Or is it that people come in the front door and can't find their way to the food and drink and music and so they think it's a lame party and so they leave and they never come back? You know, that's an onboarding problem. Is it that they've been eating all the food and dancing to all the music and they're like, I'm tired of these songs. I'm tired of this food, which is a different kind of product problem, product assortment problem. Or is it I went downstairs to the food and there was no food and the music, you know, the speakers weren't working. And that's an operational issue. Right. So fix the problems before you drop the price.
2: That's such great advice. I mean, I think about it. The, the Sorry, I'm going to extend our podcast one minute, but just to concur with the, the product, if you have product market fit, you're going to go this way. And I'm just gesticulating mm-hmm. on a podcast, never good, up and to the right, right? All the price is going to do mm-hmm. is maybe define that inflection on that curve, whatever. But exponential curves, like the slope doesn't matter often all that much in the long term, right? You can optimize it eventually, but it's really getting that that product market fit and then it kind of just takes care of itself, so. Sorry, I will let us end the podcast
1: now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that is a, a great bit of advice to wrap up on. And um your your book, Forever Transaction, was fantastic. And reading it was so fun just to think about, you know, we we put our kind of blinders on with this podcast and in the space we work in with apps, but realizing that so many of the ideas that we think about, so many of the problems we work on. Are things that are, are across the entire industry, across all consumer subscriptions, even even a lot of overlapping in B two B SaaS. Um, so it was just so fun reading your book and and, and then getting to ask you questions here. Uh, I had like thirty more questions that I wanted to ask you. We could go another <laughs> hour or two, um, but I'll I'll put links to to your LinkedIn, to your to your website, to your Twitter uh, in the in the show notes. Um, but is there anything else you wanted to share with our audience a, as we wrap up?
0: No, I think we, we we covered a lot. I mean, if, if there's one thing that I want to leave people with, it's this idea that if you start with the promise you're making to your customers, helping them with an ongoing problem or, or, or achieving an ongoing goal that's important to them, and then you optimize your offering around that, uh, your chances of both acquiring and retaining your customers is going to go way up.
1: Such great advice. Great place to end. Thank you so much, Robbie, for being on the podcast. And, and again, in the show notes, and um, you, you mentioned that there's some extra goodies. If you follow the link in the in the show notes, they can get your book and, and some extra goodies along with that. So uh, thank you again so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, real pleasure.
0: To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show and your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.